morning, church. Lovely to see you all today. Some new faces we haven't seen for a while, so it's lovely to uh, worship with you today. Um, funnily enough, Jasmine, I was thinking about you this week. I hadn't seen you for ages, yeah. <laughs> um, I've got a gospel reading which goes alongside the reading that we had earlier on uh, from Ephesians. The gospel reading is from John chapter 4. It goes like this. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone to the town to buy some food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan, and a woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this letter from Paul to the Ephesian church is a bit unusual for Paul, Because if you're familiar with him, and you would have heard lots of uh, sermons preached on Paul's work in the past, most of the time he's having a go at the church, isn't he? He's trying to sort out a problem, or he's trying to put right some sort of heresy that's crept into the church and how it's behaving. But this one, in Ephesians, is somewhat different. This is a letter of encouragement to the church, and in fact it's a church that Paul founded himself and grew over three years of evangelistic effort. So he's made a lot of investment in that church, and he's looking for that investment to produce fruit. One of the things that you might have picked up, the first part of the reading, says something like, for this reason. For this reason. Well, what's all that about? Well, in essence, it's about the Gentiles that are being made co-heirs with Israel of the promise that comes to fruition in Christ Jesus. God sometimes chooses odd people to do his work, doesn't he? Just look at the front. You know, I'm a bit peculiar in some of the things that I do and some of the things that I say, and there are some others who help me also in the church. So it's, it's a bit unusual, the, the people that God chooses. Just have a look around. Have a look in the mirror yourself. And when you think that God chooses us to do his work, it really is quite incredible. So when he wants to take the Jewish message to the Gentiles, who does he use? He uses Paul of Tarsus. Um, The most fanatical Jew that he could find. So Paul, of course, was the one who was standing alongside when Stephen was being stoned. But, of course, it's the message... um, itself, which is the most important thing of all, not the messenger. 
But the messenger can't help but get something of the blessing of God. So when God wants Saul as his messenger, he gives him the power and he equips him to do the work that God wants him to do. To bring in all of the Gentiles as co-heirs to God's plans and promises. The promise which God made to Abraham and the people of Israel is fully revealed in Abraham's seed, which is Jesus Christ, so that Gentiles don't have to become Jews to be part of God's family. You don't have to be circumcised, you'd be pleased to hear that. You don't have to come to the mountain of the Lord in Jerusalem. You don't have to go to the temple in Jerusalem. You don't have to keep the Ten Commandments. Gentiles, through a faith in Jesus, a faith in Jesus are in absolute equal terms with all of the promises God made to the nation of Israel, every single one. This is the very thing that Paul is talking of, that he was in prison because he was proclaiming that all people can be part of the promises of God that God made in the day to the Jewish nation. The promise of Abraham, who had no children at 90 years old, that he was to be the father of many nations and that kings would descend from him at 90. That Abraham's people would inherit the land of Canaan, the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That through Abraham's seed, all the nations on earth would be blessed. And that includes us as well, as we're now co-heirs. These promises to Abraham and the nation of Israel through Jesus Christ are now realized as promised to every nation, every single nation on earth, throughout the earth, through just no more than a belief and a faith in Jesus. This surpassing knowledge that Paul talks of, knowledge, of course, is the basis of the Christian faith. But it's not the only thing that's required for faith. For faith to be effective, it's taking that knowledge and acting upon it. The point being made here is that our knowledge, however extensive that is, however much we understand the Bible, however deep we go into it, however wide, however long, however high and however deep our knowledge, we can never fully describe God. And if we think we can, we're putting God in a box. And we, th we think that we understand God fully. We're making ourselves out to be as good as God. And we're not. Clearly we're not. But we can fully love God and know that he fully loves us. The scripture says, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. That's from Jeremiah. So having a knowledge of God through the word of God, the Bible, through the word of God, uh, knowledge and faith in Jesus Christ, through understanding and receiving through preaching, and now Paul turns to prayer. In his powerful prayer, he asks for five things. First, the inner man, receiving the power of God's Holy Spirit to strengthen and support each person's conscience, each person's will, 
each person's mind and each person's heart. You see, it's much more important than asking for physical prayer, isn't it? For whatever physical ailment we have, we can, to some degree or other, overcome that through how we feel about it, how we think about it, what's in our heart about it. The stuff that comes from in us is much stronger than the stuff that can go on outside of us. The second thing Paul's asking for is to be indwelt by Jesus. Now, that's an odd sort of expression, isn't it? Because we're told as Christians, when we become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. So what is it Paul's talking about becoming, as a second thing, indwelt by Jesus? Well, Jesus wants to be at home in our hearts. Now, at home in our hearts, if you think about your home, it can have many rooms. And I think of one that comes up with Harry Potter. Harry Potter used to be thrown in the cupboard under the stairs, doesn't he? Now, we can have Jesus in our lives, but we decide to put him in the cupboard under the stairs, out of the way, until we're ready to dress up, or not dress up, but come to church on a Sunday. You know, we don't see him the rest of the week. Jesus wants to be everywhere in our lives, everywhere in our home, everywhere in our heart, He wants to be in the living room, he wants to be in the dining room, he wants to be in the kitchen, the bathroom, the bedroom. He wants to be everywhere. He wants to be in the garden. So he wants to be with us, whatever we're doing in our lives, whether we're relaxing or cooking or outside in the garden having a barbecue entertaining. Jesus doesn't want to be in the cupboard. He didn't die on the cross to be in a cupboard, did he? Let's get it in perspective with him. How much he really means to us. If he really means anything at all, he'll be in every part of our lives. We'll be wanting him to be in every part of our lives. And that's what Paul's getting at. He prays that we become established, rooted and grounded in love. Nothing else, just love. That's all we're called to do as Christians. To love God, that's what he says, doesn't he? Jesus says that in the New Testament. How do you sum up the law and the prophets? Well, just love each other. Love God and love each other. That's all that all this big book of Scripture really comes down to. If we've got that right, we've got everything else right, haven't we? It's not complicated. It's not difficult. But it can be difficult to love people that you don't like, who you don't get on with you perhaps disagree with. But in that being established, what I think he's looking for is not for us to be swayed by whatever influence you hear from the front of the church, whatever the preacher is saying to you, that you're not being wishy-washy or flip-flopping from one thing to another. Well, I believe this today and I believe that the next day. You know, we need to feed the ground that we stand upon. We need to feed our faith and keep feeding our faith. Because that's when Jesus comes out, when Jesus comes alive within us. He also calls for us to be enlarged so that our life becomes expanded with what Christ can do in your life and what you can do as a result for Christ. Christ. 
It's this combined thing that God somehow has worked out beyond my understanding totally. I can't explain it. I don't know why he works like that, but he does. That's what he's chosen to do. When Jesus died on the cross, that could have been the end of it all, couldn't it? He'd done enough then. Everything was complete. He'd done everything that he needed to do. He'd lived the perfect life. He died the perfect sacrificial death. But God didn't want to stop it there. So we've got a part to play in this. It's not just enough to give our lives to Christ. We need to act that the kingdom of God is now here within us, working within us. Finally, he prays to be filled with all the fullness of God. And to do that, we really need to empty ourselves of some other stuff, perhaps all other stuff. You know, to take it to the nth degree, get rid of everything else. Because all that really counts in life, in death, in the afterlife, is a love of God. So why is it we don't see more of God at work in our own lives and also in the lives of those people around us? Perhaps it's either because we don't ask, or if we do ask, we don't expect our prayers to be answered. How many people feel that's true? You know, we'll ask and then we'll just forget about it, won't we? But the word says to us, ask and keep on asking, keep on knocking at the door. In some ways, make it happen yourself. Be determined about it. If it's in line with God's will, it will definitely happen. Definitely happen. God's able to do immeasurably more, the scripture says, that we can either ask or indeed imagine. And I'm sure that at times he's at work when we just don't know about it, do we? We haven't even asked for the right thing, but he's somehow working that out in our lives. And you can certainly see that as a Christian when you look back. When you look at back at where you come from and the things that you've come through and how you've come through that with the help of God and with the help of God's church. If our understanding of God and our looking for his direction in our lives is left to a couple of hours on a Sunday, then we have a small understanding of him And also what goes with that is a small expectation of him. He who promised is faithful, even though we're unfaithful. What a God we serve. So does that mean he has a correspondingly small expectation of you and me? No. He's still faithful to us, isn't he? Even though we act unfaithfully towards him. It's clear to me that there are many Christians, and I'll include myself in this, that are not becoming all that God intends us to be. But listen, God doesn't give up on you, even if you feel despondent about your lack of achievement for God. God doesn't think of you in those terms. He looks at you through rose-tinted glasses. Did you know that? Glasses that are tinted with the blood of Christ. So Christian, when he looks at you, he sees what Jesus has achieved for you and he sees the potential that you have to be the person that he created you to be. Don't try to be anything else. 
Just endeavour to be the person that God created you to be. That's enough. Just love him with your whole heart and look at the example of Mary and Martha. Martha ran about, didn't she, trying to be the perfect host for Jesus while Mary just sat at his feet, eagerly listening to every word that came from his lips. And Jesus said, what did he say? Mary had chosen the better way. Not Martha, who was running about trying to do all this stuff for Jesus. God really doesn't need us to do that, does he? He could do anything he wants, anytime he wants. What he wants above anything else is your love. That's why it's so simple when it comes down to it. Christian message, isn't it? So simple. We complicate it so much, don't we? It's all about our love for Christ, God, and his Holy Spirit. Well, there is an aspect of that, but I think that Paul is trying to get us to focus with a laser focus on the love that stems from God. Because if we grasp just how much God loves us, it can't fail but impact upon our love for him and consequently our love for his creation. All of it. Surely all who give their lives to Christ are guaranteed the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit. I said that before, didn't I? And the implication to us is that we cannot be fully mature in Christ until we know for ourselves the fullness of his love. That's what Paul's getting at. If you want to be a mature Christian, you need to be, above everything else, mature in the fullness of God's love for you. We can deprive ourselves of the fullness of that love of God because we decide to go our own way rather than the way of Yahweh. What we need to do is to be progressively aware of the limitless dimensions of God's love for us, and that takes power, Paul says. It takes power. Not a power that seeks to benefit self at the expense of others. The, the, the words that came up on the screen, they were a bit different, weren't they? Can you remember what they were? There was an odd, an odd expression there about power. Have you got it there, Hayden? I can't remember what it was, but it was like a, a bullying, a selfish power, that it's not about that at all. It's about, about a power that seeks to give, a power that seeks to give in love. Not a power that seeks to benefit itself at the expense of other people. A power that makes us holy, a power that helps us to become mature. Why is it necessary? Well, verse 14 gives us a hint when Paul uses the phrase, again, for this reason. And that also appears, if we go back, this is chapter is it 3 or 4, I can't remember. But if we go back to chapter 3, verse 1, if we go back to Ephesians 1, verse 15. So to understand that, you'll have to read all the preceding chapters. I'm not going to read them for you now. You may want to do that when you go home. This is the gospel of God. It's secured in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. It's displayed and dispensed in the power of God's Holy Spirit. 
In short, it's to bring all things together in heaven and on earth under one head, which is Christ. What God is about is creating a new humanity, a humanity which is not concerned at all about self, but instead is submitted to the love that's found in Jesus Christ who dwells in us. A humanity that seeks to grow in the knowledge of that love and become mature in the giving of that love, becoming more and more alive to the leading of Christ in all aspects of our lives. When did you last pray a prayer like Paul prayed there? Perhaps you never have. Perhaps you feel that you're not very good at prayer, that prayer is some sort of special gift that's given to others and not to you. I can tell you that's wrong thinking. And don't worry, because the Bible tells us that immediately we finish praying, God's Spirit prays for us. Romans 8 says it. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And if you really want to find the right things to pray for, the most important things then you can do no worse than look at the examples which are given in Scripture. The examples of the Apostle Paul, his prayers given here in Ephesians and elsewhere, the prophet Moses as he led the people out of Egypt, King David, his personal turmoils, and also his joy and deep love for God reflected in the Psalms, and of course the prayers of Jesus. This vision of God then is first as our Father who's in heaven, but a bit like Mother's Day. You know, our understanding personally of mothers and fathers may not be so good. Some people here and some people listening may not even know who their mother or father is. Some here, a bit like myself, have had a bad experience of a father or a mother. God's not like that at all. God is the perfect father. And the power of prayer is not in us who ask, but in he who answers those prayers. The possibilities are immense, the opportunities are too many to measure, too much for our tiny minds to comprehend. The glory is not just in Jesus, as you would expect it, but also, Paul says, in the church, because we become holy, that we live our lives reflecting God's love for the world. Amen. Let us pray. I pray that out of his glorious riches, that God may strengthen each one here and each one listening to these words with power through his spirit in your innermost being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in his love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp just how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and also to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God in Christ Jesus. Amen.